0: And today we are continuing with the analysis of the Shloka number 5 from the chapter number 6. It is tentatively suggested that the chapter number 6 will be the last chapter that will comment in this season in the Bhagavad Gita. And that after the chapter number 6 of Bhagavad Gita will start with other commentaries. I will give discourses on other major issues or texts from the yoga tradition. So in the chapter 6, Shloka number 5 was very, very important. Last week we also had a bit of a less time due to the Yang spiral, which was coming immediately after the discourse. And because of this, I kept the discourse short and this Shloka occupied already all the discourse. So important it is because it gives us the key to the spiritual evolution it gives us the basic principle i will read it again krishna tells to arjuna as teaches arjuna and he says let a man rise his lower self by his higher self it's like every human being has an icon ...of perfection etched deep inside their hearts. Each human being has the divine consciousness in their heart. And exactly as Jesus says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. That father in heaven that is perfect is in the heart of the human being. It is illustrated by the supreme self. And that is why basically spirituality says you can transform... Your lower self. The fathers of the desert called the advanced practitioners who are having the blessings from the prayer, they call them simply improved human beings. All the human beings are born the way they are born. With the DNA from their parents, with the characteristics of their astrological signs, with the samskaras and karma from their previous lives. But it is possible for a human being, from wherever they start, that they can improve themselves. Improve themselves according to what standards, according to what criteria, according to the fact that inside ourselves there exists already a perfect model. There exists like when the great Christian saints, for example, describe the gifts of the Holy Spirit or the characteristics of true love. They say love is patient, love does not boast, love does not get angry, love is this and that. Or the gifts of the Holy Spirit are, again, patience, wisdom, love and so on. What are these These are just characteristics of this perfect paradigm. It's the perfect human being. This is the Adam, the original human being. This is the lost paradise in the human being, which is illustrated by this symbol of perfection, which we have in us, illustrated by the Supreme Self. That is why we do not rise ourselves through Shirshasana, the headstand. We do not rise ourselves through the anabandha, the abdominal suction. We actually rise ourselves through our higher self. Yoga methods are just helpers, props. They are fulfilling some functions helping us in this process. Because otherwise, it's like what are we going towards? Where are we going to? How do we know when we have reached the target? Because the target is already inside us. We have the perfection again engraved inside ourselves, and intuitively our subconscious mind knows what that perfection is. We can argue upon a lot of things in life intellectually, but when it comes to the archetypes, the things are, again, pretty clear. That is why the first teaching of Krishna is very important. Make your lower self resemble more and more day after day your higher self. Your target is to become in the likeness of God. To become in the likeness of the Supreme Self. There is a Perfect human in you, there is a perfect consciousness. This principle was used by the Christian science as a principle for healing. They said, since there exists a perfect human in each and every one, then disease, illness, is nothing else but a deviation from that. It's like you forgot that once upon a time, in the at the origin... You were created perfect. Therefore, the only thing to do is to pray to be restored to that perfection. Think of yourself as being the original blueprint coming from God, because the blueprint is with no mistake. The blueprint is perfect. And if you are going to read books and magazines published by the Christian Science Organizations, you are going to see many people who did just that and almost instantaneously got healed simply through this miracle of the attunement with something which is perfect archetypal. This thing is not valid only in health terms, it is valid morally, it is valid ethically, it is valid spiritually, it is valid psychologically and mentally and from all standpoints that we have the model already. So the first teaching is beautiful, it says transform your lower self. If somebody does not manage to transform their lower self, then two things are the outcome of it. Either that person does not evolve, does not become a refined, evolved human being. Or if that person, by using some tricky methods, because there exist tricky methods in Zen, in Tibetan Buddhism, in Kashmiri Shaivism, in the Sufi tradition... If a human being uses shortcuts, sudden methods, such as the, some of the Gurdjieff methods and others, then that person becomes split. That person is angel and demon. There is, that person is one foot in heaven and one foot in hell. One part of that human being is paradise, cosmic consciousness, and the other part is an ugly ego. The alchemists... As I said last time already this, the alchemist said that this is a technical mistake. It's like you cut a mayonnaise. It's like you prepare a mayonnaise and because you do something wrong, it cuts. Then it's a fiasco. You cannot basically save it or it's very difficult from that stage to get to a good stage again. That is why this process of transformation of the lower self towards the higher self, is very, very important. And this is the very essence, not only of spiritual evolution, but this is the very essence of all evolution. The human beings whose souls are coming from lower incarnations in the animal realm and they are going towards angel, divine, superhuman and bodhisattva Buddha-like levels, The human being does exactly this. Either they do yoga or they don't do yoga. Everybody is on a trajectory from chimpanzee to God. And therefore, be aware of the fact that this principle is only used by the yogis to accelerate the spiritual evolution. But spiritual evolution is the law of this universe. Every soul in this universe is here to evolve. And this evolution is not my intent or your intent. It is, as we could say in a Christian theology, God's will. Or in Indian terminology, it's Dharma. It's the will of the universe. It is non-negotiable. This universe has as reason of existence evolution. Evolve. Or be pushed against your will into evolution, there is no choice. That is why this is a very, very important statement that you have to lift yourself through your own self. People say, I don't know what to do. It's not true. You are pretending you know what to do because perfection pre exists at a certain level in the heart, in the soul. Of the human being. Meditate deeply. No, It's like those jokes. What would Buddha do? What would Jesus say? You know the answer. What would the divine consciousness think? If you meditate a little bit. You know where that goes. You know what that means. The second statement of Krishna was. Let him not lower his higher self. Having the higher self activated means that you are born with consciousness. If you would have been born as a cow, you would have had no self-awareness. You would have been an intelligent being but not having the self-awareness. You cannot say who am I, what am I doing in this world. Having this consciousness is giving us enormous capabilities An enormous freedom and enormous rights, but it brings with it an enormous responsibility. The cow is not responsible for its evolution. The cow cannot do anything to slow down its own evolution. The cow cannot do anything to accelerate its own evolution. The cow is eating, sleeping and procreating. The cow is converting oxygen into carbon dioxide. That's all it does. And it evolves in a slow, automatic manner, robotic-like. And it doesn't ask itself why things are that way. In the case of the human being, the situation is different. And therefore, you are given a higher self, which is active. I'm not saying that the cow does not have a higher self, but that higher self is in a latent condition. It's like put asleep, because this awareness resulting from the crown chakra is not there. And that's why Krishna says, let him not debase his higher self. Living an unspiritual life, You basically mock your own divine nature. If you just want to live, to eat and sleep and procreate, you shouldn't have been born human. You should have been born a cow. That's enough. But if you want to have the right to be a human, and of course, all of you have earned that right through your evolution, then you have to use that, as I also said last time, you have to multiply The initial gift, you cannot die the same way you are born. There has to be at least 1%, 10%, something, growth in your life, through your life. And that is why Krishna says, let one not debase oneself, because you can actually debase yourself, the nature, the universe, God, you can call it whatever you want, has given you a Buddha nature and you treat that Buddha nature with neglect. This is in itself a grievous failure, as Tibetan yoga puts it. And therefore, the second rule is do not live an unworthy life. Live a life which is making it worthy for you to be human. You are born human for a reason. Bring that to light. Highlight that reason. And finally in the last statement. Krishna said for this self alone is the friend of oneself. And the lower self or the ego is the enemy of oneself. Usually people think that the ego is their best friend. Because on a primitive level. Your ego makes you eat, protect your life, procreate. Your ego makes you defend from pain and danger. Your ego governs your immune system and all the vital things. And then people think, seem to believe that the ego is just the only guarantee of your survival. But on the other hand, Krishna says, the ego is also your worst enemy. Living for your ego produces a self-destructive temperament. I have seen in my life so many people with a painful ego who did a lot of direct and indirect actions, most of the time unconsciously, of self-destruction. Those people lived their lives as if somewhere very deeply. They hated themselves, they had contempt towards themselves, they didn't really love themselves in the deeper meaning of that word. Some people think that if you love yourself, you are a selfish narcissist or something. None of those symbols works because the selfish person does not love himself, there is no love in the selfish person it's only a simile of love, it's a mock love, it's a caricature of love, but not love. And at the same time, the, this symbol of finding yourself or finding your deeper self is not based on selfishness. That is why, of course, here there is a deeper understanding, but remember, there are many people who say, You have to mind your own business. You have to take care of yourself. It has even become a salutation among people. Take care of yourself. But Jesus, at some point in his life, didn't seem to take too much care of himself. Other and other yogis, men and women of spirituality, from Teresa of Avila to Rumi and from Ramakrishna to Milarepa, they didn't really take care of themselves They took care of their immortal self, they took care of their salvation, like I have to save my soul. But when it came to taking care of themselves on a lower level, actually some of them were pretty indifferent and pretty careless and pretty negligent. And many people say, maybe if Ramakrishna would have held a good diet, maybe if Milarepa would have done this or that, maybe if, uh, I don't know whom, Rumi or Saint Teresa of Avila would have acted this way or that way, they would have lived longer, they would have been healthier, they would have been this and they would have been that. That is precisely the point. Those people were taking care of what was really essential Many people take care of their body and they defile their spirit, their immortal self. Ramakrishna took care of his immortal self, and when it came to the body, he may have been sometimes more negligent and more careless. That, of course, creates a split and a duality. And in a tantric monistic understanding, I would prefer that people see this in a more holistic way, in a more whole way in a more holographic and integrated way but still the human being has only a limited capability while being present in a physical body and therefore you select from what you can do first the priorities it is Jesus who said if your right hand prevents you from getting to the kingdom of heaven cut off your right hand because it is better to reach without your right hand than not to reach at all, then blaming the hand. It is because of my right hand that I couldn't stick myself off and get to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says cut it off. Be decisive. Be determined. Don't dabble superficially into things. When you are motivated, be motivated indeed. Therefore... Here Krishna is giving us a great teaching. He says, your true friend is your higher self, your spiritual nature. That's what's going to save you. That's what's going to pay. If you invest in your higher self, that is your best friend. And the lower self is sometimes your enemy, your worst enemy, your own enemy. This is a very, very complex shloka. It took me so long time and I could keep on commenting, but I don't want to get stuck at this level of the text. This is a very, very important verset from the Gita because it tells us exactly the fundamental principle of how to evolve, how to grow up spiritually, what to stay away from, and it is in itself... Uh, paradigm of spiritual evolution. And then Krishna continues. We are moving now finally to the strophe number six. The self is the friend of the self for him who has conquered himself by the self. But to the unconquered self, this self stands in the position of an enemy like an external foe again the same double entendre sometimes Krishna speaks about the lower self sometimes speaks about the higher self but it is a confusion typical in the Hindu environment because he uses for both of them the term atma however Only the higher self deserves truly to be called Atma and the lower self should be called Ahamkara or some other name which denotes the ego, the limited self, the inferior self. On purpose to make it ambiguous and poetic and double entendre and a real metaphor, Krishna uses this slippery word of Atma for both of them and he says... The self is the friend of the self for him who has conquered himself by the self. For him who has conquered himself, his lower nature, by the higher self. Therefore, for the person that has evolved, for the person that has raised himself or herself spiritually, for such a person, the self is the friend of the self. The higher self is the friend of the lower self and it can be read the other way around. The lower self is the friend of the higher self, which means the human being who is spiritually evolved in a proper way lives in a state of harmony with themselves. People say, how come that Ramakrishna or Milarepa or Ramana Maharishi or Teresa of Avila, they don't feel the need for from time to time, to do something really shitty. Like, people are twisted, people have dark sides, you stay quiet and you try to behave. We have it in the school. Sometimes people come and sometimes the leap is so great. People come from partying, drugs, selfishness, all sorts of demonic tendencies and so on, and then they find themselves thrown in a full-fledged intensive yoga course And they even contemplate becoming vegetarian and telling the truth and practicing non-violence and cultivating a lot of things. And it's such a contrast. And don't think we know that it happens. Sometimes people, hopefully for a very short period of time, like a nostalgia of the past, like a call of the wild, they relapse. We have people who do two weeks of yoga... And then they go to the full moon party and to the hot rin and they get sloshed drunk. And then they come like a beaten dog the next day with their tail between the legs and they are even ashamed to tell like we don't know. Of course we know that if you come from a party life and so on and you move immediately into a spiritual life the difference is going to be painful and you are going to have nostalgias It's true, sick nostalgias, dirty nostalgias, demonic nostalgias, but still they are going to be there. Like the change is too quick. It's like you've been weaned your habits a little bit too suddenly. And there is a sort of like, you know, I'm looking back. I'm sometimes looking back like some perverse part of me still wants some of that selfish, bizarre unclean thing which I was doing before and yes sometimes people relapse in this way and that's why that is exactly what is said here for the person that has fulfilled this evolution this relapsing does not exist anymore. People who ask, "Why did Ramana? Are you sure that Ramana Maharishi was not masturbating from time to time, or gossiping, or doing some wicked thing from time to time? After all, he was a human being. We can't believe that a human being is so holy and so perfect." Come on, look around. This is how people are. It's a soap opera, no? Wherever you look in every movie, in everything, you find that people have dark sides and have all sorts. So it's like, how come that some people are so lucky that they don't have their dark sides? They do. Ramana Maharishi had his dark sides when he was 17 years old. Ramakrishna and Teresa of Avila had their dark sides. But they went through it slowly, slowly rising, using the higher self as a target and as a model. And of course they had their moments of relapsing. And if they didn't make the ascension too steep so as to scare themselves off, then slowly, slowly it worked. The lower self is friend to the higher self. The higher self is friend to the lower self in a human being that has reached some degree of evolution. That means Ramakrishna was not having the urge to drop out of vegetarianism. He had been vegetarian for so long time. He was so sattvic. He was so purified in his samskaras that this question didn't even arise for him. People that stopped being vegetarian last, I'm sorry, people who went vegetarian last month, of course this month, especially when they are hungry, and there is not some quick vegetarian tasty food available for them, if they feel the smell of the steak or something, they sometimes have a thought which says, well, you know, it's like, I don't know. No, like they are, tempted. They may give in to that temptation or not. That is not important. But people will say Ramana Maharishi when he felt the smell of a steak, did he also have the same which I did? Probably not. Or if yes, very 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 little because Ramana Maharishi had changed his lower self by the higher self and all these samskaras and things Had vanished. His lower self was in a good friendly relationship with the higher self. This is called, in the language of psychology, it's called the integration of the lower self into the higher self. Our lower self is like a rebellious demonic unit and says, I want to do this, I want to do that. And the higher self says, Why on earth can't I behave? Why on earth? Can't I simply be f- satisfied with what I have, with my spiritual thing? It's because the lower self and the higher self did not talk to each other and the human being is angel and demon. The human being is Mr. Jekyll and Dr. Hyde or whatever, whichever was the doctor and whichever was the mister, it doesn't matter. The human being is split. This splitting can exist even in human beings that have achieved great spiritual levels, and it is valid especially for people that have practiced very sudden methods of enlightenment and who did not have what the Tibetans call lamrim, which means the gradual path a gradual path of growth which gives you time to weed the weeds. If you cultivate your garden for 10 years, and every one month you weed the weeds, slowly, slowly you are going to find all the roots and all the bulbs of the uh, weeds, and then your garden will mysteriously be very free of weeds, because you have weeded it systematically for 10 years. And weeds did not have time. They have been exterminated mercilessly month after month for years and years. That's what's happening to a Ramana Maharishi or to a Saint Teresa of Avila or to a Swami Shivananda. They weed and they weed and they weed and eventually their lower self is good friend with the higher self. If not, your ego can become your worst enemy. Like, then you do things which are really stupid. Like, there are so many examples, I don't want now to go into practical examples, but there are so many examples in modern and ancient spirituality of people who are a bit of this sudden jerky category and they did lots of stupid things although they were spiritual and on the path to spirituality. And at the same time, The higher self, it can be said, that the higher self stands in the position of an enemy like an external foe. Such as, for example, your ego says, I have defeated this strange, bizarre bug which I had in my mind, which told me, do yoga, do meditation, evolve. There is no evolution, there is no spirit, I just want to eat and drink and be merry and do all the stupid stuff. This is a person in whom the lower self has triumphed, a person that lives by their ego. Then the higher self becomes your enemy. Inside you there is something like a prisoner bird which is trapped inside your heart and that bird is crying for freedom and you won't listen and then that bird starts taking revenge at you it's like your own soul says you don't give me what I need then I don't give you what you need because you don't give me what I need for example I said it in several lectures in yoga if a person betrays their inner self the jivatman such a person can get a cancer at a young age such person get a, can get a breakdown of the immune system and such a person simply dies young mysteriously, although in reasonable health, simply because your own spirit, your own soul is pissed off at your ego. Your ego has taken over and is sailing your boat in a wrong direction and then yourself simply says, I shall not stand on this boat. If you choose to sail your boat that way, I'm jumping off the boat. I'm leaving boat. Let's see, how will you sail the boat that way without me? Because I ultimately am the master of the house. It is like the supreme self has to have 51% of the votes in this association. And the lower self has to be subordinated but they don't have to be in a relationship of war either because then you are very, very split. Beginners in yoga are often in a state which is split. For e- sometimes no. For example, Ramana Maharishi was born in the 19th century in India. Poor boy born from a Puritanic simple Brahmin family vegetarian through family and everything, born in a simple religious way. He never played poker. He never, I don't know, watched Playboy magazines. He never did this, he never did that. He never stole, he never lied, he never cheated. Like a 17-year-old clean Hindu boy from Madras or wherever he was, from Chennai, In the end of the 19th century, today, if such a boy would live in New York or in Paris, he would be considered a weirdo, an angel-like weirdo, such a pure, simple person compared to the lack of integrity, to the perversion to the lack of decency which the modern society imprints in so many people. Not to mention that, on top of the modern society imposing or injecting so many skewed values in the brains of the modern people, on top of this, we have the people disturbed severely, emotionally, and mentally by the use, by the excessive use of antibiotics. Vaccination and other modern medical things which have as collateral effects, the disturbance of the soul today in many modern countries, especially America is quoted, but it's by far not the only country. Approximately one-fourth of the children, one-fourth of the children are born with clear symptoms of autism, like this medical perverted system has reached to the point where the degeneration of the race and of the DNA has become so much that people are not born with tendency to diabetes. Tendency to diabetes is a joke because at least you are healthy in your brain and you can think correctly if you have a tendency to diabetes. But when you are autistic and more, then things are really, really disturbed, like a mental or emotional disturbance, is a hundred times more grievous than a physiological disturbance or a superficial one where you have a problem on your skin or something, which can be very unpleasant and very not good looking, but still it's a minor, it's a joke compared to when your soul or mind are born skewed, polluted, deviated and then you really cannot see the truth, discriminate, make proper choices because you are born damaged, you are born skewed, you are born blinded, hypnotized in a weird way from the very beginning of your life and that is why in the case of Ramana Maharishi Ramana Maharishi reached a sort of a sudden enlightenment, but guess what? He was lucky. He was a decent, pure, simple, sattvic, well-educated from the first seven years of his childhood, religious and everything. He was already a very improved human being through education, not through spiritual practice. (coughs) And in the moment when he got enlightened, his higher self did not have to fight too much with his lower self. Because his lower self was not a perverted ego that had a lot of demonic skewed ugly tendencies which the higher self had always to tell, no, 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 we don't want to do that. Therefore, remember that when your higher self And the lower self are very different because this process of evolution has not been done. Then there is no integration. The integration is not good. And if the integration is not good, then there is a lot of inner conflict. And sometimes your ego is acting as the enemy of your soul. And sometimes even your soul can act as the enemy of your integrity as The enemy of your well-being. Thus, here Krishna simply says, your higher self is friend with the lower self when you have done this process of evolution. Otherwise, if you have not been conquered by, if your lower self has not been conquered and transformed by the higher self, then the higher self and the lower self will be in a condition of enmity and there is no peace in you. This is why in yoga we teach a complete path where we teach to people yama, niyama start with those things because you need to harmonize your lower levels. Many people are irritated. They say, why do I have to do tapas? Why do I have to practice detachment? It's like Patanjali invented some weird stuff just to piss you off, just to provoke you. No. Patanjali simply expressed on paper how your lower self has to be so you don't fall into conflict with your higher self because that's how your higher self is. As we tell to people, Yama and Niyama simply says how you would be anyway. If you would be enlightened and at harmony with yourself. And then he continues, I'm moving to the verse at number seven. The supreme self of him who is self controlled and peaceful is balanced in cold and heat, pleasure and pain, also in honor and dishonor, in honor and disgrace. It is again the illustration in Bhagavad Gita of what Buddha calls the middle path and what the Latin philosophers were calling Aurea Mediocritas, the golden middle, to find the middle. Krishna says when the supreme self is ruling the one that is self-controlled, controlled by the higher self, therefore the one that has reached at peace with oneself, then such a person is balanced in all the dualities. The ones chosen here are in cold and heat, pleasure and pain, honor and dishonor. This is one of the measures of the thing spiritual. If anybody claims that they are spiritual in that way, they look. How do I behave in extremes of cold and heat, pleasure and pain, honor and dishonor, success and failure. And if you see a very, very big difference, then automatically you haven't reached that middle. Again, it's not robotically identically the same, but it definitely says that there is a balance. Like Ramakrishna did not disown God or his religious ideas because he was having a cancer and he was suffering. Even in his suffering, Ramakrishna remained devoted to Kali, devoted to the divine. And it's not because, as you some of you may believe, that Ramakrishna perhaps hoped, absurdly in a miracle and in a last-minute healing. For example, the disciples of Ramakrishna, seeing that his throat was so swollen and he could not eat solid food, he could only swallow liquids in the final stages of his cancer, his disciples simply said, please, they pushed him, they really went hard on him, they said, please pray to Kali, ...to allow you to eat something. Of course, ignorant, because somebody could have said... ...why didn't he try to fast for 21 days or something? Why was everybody so obsessed to give him kichari or whatever they were giving him as food? Like that denoted ignorance, you know, the whole issue of Ramakrishna was perhaps if you would go there as a holistic healer, as an alternative healer, maybe you would say, oh, you cannot swallow food? Good. I actually wanted to tell you to fast for 40 days. So it's okay you can't swallow food, don't worry. Go on a fast for a black fast for 40 days. That's not, so these people were ignorant, really. They didn't know what they were talking about, but they had this simple materialistic childish superstition that Ramakrishna, you have to eat something. Everybody wants to see their sick relatives and so on eating something like when you see somebody eating it's almost like you believe that a miracle happens and that person is going to be well and survive so childishly naively candidly they go to Ramakrishna and they tell him go to Kali because we know you pretend you are in a very good relationship with Kali and she loves you and you love her and simply ask her please let me eat something do it we are asking you to do this And Ramakrishna was such a candid, humble person that he went and prayed. And he came back and he said, Kali told me, why do you need to eat through your own mouth when you are eating through so many mouths around you? So basically Kali, if you are a cynical person, you would say Kali gave him the finger. Kali simply told him, fuck off, you are not going to get well, you are going to die. Shkali gave him a philosophical evasive answer which basically meant that, you know, you are not going to get any, you are not going to see any miracle. You are not going to see any revival because the whole thing was just philosophy. And yet Ramakrishna who knew this and who was the the crux of the whole problem, who was in the crossfire of the whole thing. Ramakrishna did not lose his spirituality, did not lose his hope, did not become cynical, did not abandon the spirituality. Just like Job in the Bible, who is persecuted by God, and Job does not lose his faith. He loses his money, his family, his health, and then he says, God has given, God has taken. God be praised. Like Job, in richness and in poverty, in comfort and in pain, he never changed. He remained the same spiritual person. This is always a mark of the spiritual person. That the spiritual person put in these conditions or in those conditions will have something steady in There is a Christian saint, which I often describe to you also, it's described in the lectures about living the life in the present and all those. There is a Christian saint whose name eludes me right now, who was thrown by the Byzantine emperor into a salt mine, into an underground salt mine, which was at the most deadly prison of the empire in those days for being Christian. And when he found himself in the prison, he built an altar... And he started celebrating the mass every day. And he converted the whole prison. He baptized everybody in the prison Christian. And he was, And the prison turned into a monastery. Into an underground monastery. Where people did prayer. And they loved Jesus. And eventually the emperor had to take him and throw him out. And eventually he got executed. Because wherever he was going. These men were unstoppable. Free or in prison, or wherever, this man was singing praise to Jesus Christ and was baptizing people in his name. He was unstoppable. There was no way to stop him except by exterminating him physically, otherwise nothing could stop him. That's what exactly is this mark. When even the controversial Osho Rajneesh was in America and he was thrown in prison by the FBI... He was kept in very, very bad conditions. The Rajneesh people even claim he was poisoned with some rare metal or something in prison. And he was kept with loudspeakers around the walls of his cell so he could not sleep and so on. And some journalist came and interrogated him and was trying to mock him. Like the big Baba Rajneesh, the big Guruji is now in prison and so on. And he said, what do you do now? What have you got to say now? And Rajneesh gave A brilliant, exemplary, beautiful answer. Rajneesh said, you can throw me even in hell, but you cannot take away the paradise from my heart. This is exactly what is meant into this, that in the world of duality, where everything is necessarily yin and yang, and after every valley there is a hill, and after every hill there is a valley, the human being will always sail with ups and downs if any one of you imagines that you are not going to have ups and downs you are wrong if you don't want to have any downs then you should not have any ups if you accept to live a pretty mild bland life then there will be not too many ups and those ups will not require downs for compensation but if you are going to go for ups then you can also expect downs. And therefore what I'm saying here is it is impossible to have a life lived on earth in which there are no cold and heat, success and failure and all those dualities which I mentioned pleasure and pain, honor and dishonor. The spiritual condition is a condition which is not distracted by those. I'm not saying that they don't matter. I'm not saying that Ramakrishna did not feel pain. He did. But again, this not this did not deter him from being Ramakrishna and from being what he was. I often tell to people who preach an unrealistic non-dualism Unfortunately some of the new age space cakes, some of the new age freak superficial people somehow discovered non-dualistic doctrines from Kashmir, Tibet and other places and they start quoting them like parrots without really living out those things, (coughs) without being part of it. And it is ridiculous to see people who are at the level of a soap opera in their lives talking, quoting from Abhinavagupta or from Nagarjuna, because it is exactly like you would hear a retarded oligofren quoting from Albert Einstein or something like this. You know they don't understand what they say, but they keep saying it like it's very significant and they are saying something big. And whenever people are telling me, Swami, shouldn't you say things more like in this way and in that way? I'm asking them, can you confront the world of dualities? Like people say, it makes no difference this and that. And then I'm telling them, it's bollocks. You're just talking nonsense. Take your finger, put it on the table, take the biggest hammer in the house and smash your bone with a hammer. And then tell me if you are indifferent to pleasure and pain. No? Are you indifferent? Like Then don't talk rubbish as long as you can't do that You are not fully in the middle in what concerns one of the most simple dualities of life, pleasure and pain. And that is why I'm saying um, this is a very important trophy because it gives us something in terms of a measure. Krishna gives a measure like the tree shall be known by its fruits. Here are the fruits as outlined by Krishna. For him where the supreme self is self control and peaceful. The self of such a person is balanced in cold and heat, pleasure and pain. As also in honor and disgrace. You are honored. You are dishonored. Do you manage to be just a plus minus 10% but roughly speaking kind of the same? Then... Those are the fruits of the wisdom. Though that is the real fruit of the tree, which shows that the tree is the right tree. And the shloka number eight is famous in the yoga literature. It is used very often as a measure, especially in terms of aparigraha, that means, for those of you who don't remember what aparigraha is, detachment, non-attachment. And many people take it at the level of the material property, although Krishna puts it at a much deeper level. And unfortunately I have seen many, many people interpreting it in very ridiculous ways. Here is what Krishna says in the verse at number 8. The yogi who is satisfied with the wisdom and knowledge of the supreme self. So the one that has basically reached or almost reached the Buddha or the Bodhisattva like yogi. Who has conquered the senses and to whom a clod of earth, a piece of stone and gold are all the same is said to be harmonized. Is basically said to be united. Swami Shivananda says that means that he has reached the state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi. But the word which is used here is to be united. The, it is not, they don't use the word yoga, but the derivative from it. And they basically say that person has reached yoga, that person has reached union. Union Mystica, mystical union or enlightenment. So let's read it again. The yogi is, has reached the state of union. It's again a measure of things. When is contented in the knowledge and experience of the self, unshakable master of the senses, and who is balanced in, in experiencing earth, stone or gold. Basically, it says the one for whom a lump of earth and a lump of gold are all the same. There is a simplistic interpretation that the great yogis don't give a dime on material wealth. You put a pile of earth near a meditating yogi, you put a pile of gold and the yogi, when he opens his eyes from meditation, it's like, so what? You know, it's like... It makes no difference. The primitive conclusion of the people. Is of course. The primitive conclusion of some interpreters. Is just a very primitive interpretation. Of aparigraha. That you are indifferent. To material wealth. But of course. Things. Are going much deeper. Than that. Because here Krishna keeps talking about. This middle path. And he does not refer only to that and when you refer to that that can be interpreted also as an indifference and we always tell you in the lecture on aparigraha which will be again next week on tuesday just for those of you who need to hear it we always tell to you that the problem is the internal attitude The detachment is not the same thing with indifference. But in English language, in French language and a few other languages, when you say I am detached, it means I am cold, indifferent, I don't care, I am aloof and all that. But that is a wrong attitude. It is a criminal spiritual attitude. And Mahatma Gandhi, for example, who was a great karma yogi, he was detached but he was never indifferent or cold. That is why some people, unfortunately, I met people who pretended to be gurus, spiritual teachers, and they all the time behaved extremely cold, extremely indifferent. And in their very limited environment, they thought that this denotes wisdom. In their own role playing, They thought that that's what denotes that they have reached a high state of meditation. This is when you try to fake detachment without actually having reached detachment. And then instead of detachment, which is a city in China, and you don't know exactly how detachment manifests in every circumstance of life, then you are faking it with a surrogate, with a fake surrogate, which is indifference, coldness. And you say, Oh, I'm indifferent. It's like if people praise me or this, I'm indifferent. But for example, Swami Shivananda, when there was some scandal, because he was also accused of many things in his life and others, Saint Teresa of Avila was accused of all sorts of. Monstrosities and so on, like people of great decency in spirituality, have unavoidably been accused of all sorts of things. And when Swami Shivananda was accused, he could have been indifferent. He said, You're a bunch of fools and you don't understand me, and it's like, I don't care. But Swami Shivananda, for example, defended himself he wrote a letter and he said this is not true and look why it is not true and then people would say see swami shivananda cares so maybe he is not so wise of course he cared because detachment means that you care but it doesn't mean again indifference because swami shivananda has assumed had assumed upon himself the role of being a teacher And if he, as a teacher, was discredited gratuitously, then he could not be such an efficient teacher. It was taking from himself exactly what he felt was his dharma. Exactly what he felt was his meaning to do was diminished on him precisely because of this. So actually for him detachment did not mean I'm going to be indifferent and not care. I am going to care, although it is not because it is praise and disgrace. It is simply because it hinders my dharma. It hinders my tapas. It hinders the goal of my life, which I have assumed in front of God, in front of the higher consciousness. And that is why this statement, which is famous is very often interpreted, it's one of the most misinterpreted statements in Bhagavad Gita, because it is interpreted in a very theatrical way, in a very histrionic way, in a very wiseacre way, in a very ridiculous way, because it is interpreted like you should simply be indifferent and play stupid, like sure, earth, stone, gold, who cares... I'm all indifferent to it, but remember that the meaning which Krishna gave to it was that the soul should remain in this middle path of it. That's where it comes from, that when you are contented, when you have conquered the self, that is it, but it is a measure of things, and yes, It has a multiple layer meaning, so one of the meanings is also about the physical world. But for example, Swami Shivananda, who was a great enterprising man, who built an ashram, a university, a printing press, a hospital and this, he knew very clearly the difference between a lump of earth and a mound of gold. He would have had to be retarded or to play idiot, pretend he did not understand the value of money, gold or other things. When he was building things and organizing a school. And taking so many responsibilities upon his shoulders. That is why, please understand this in the proper way. Because I have seen it interpreted in this radical negativistic way. Like a simplification of it. And that simplification does not. Yes, one interpretation of it is don't be greedy, don't be completely like, oh my God, gold, I'm ready to kill somebody for this gold. Of course that meaning is there, but that meaning grows pale by comparison to the deeper spiritual meanings which are involved and invoked there. And I want to call your attention, therefore, rather on those than on the primitive, simplistic interpretations of that. And he continues in the verset number nine. He who is of the same mind to the good-hearted, friends, enemies, the indifferent, the neutral, the hateful, the relatives, the righteous and the unrighteous, excels. This is a very strong statement, again, and it does not involve, again, the same primitivism. There is a primitive interpretation onto this, which almost nobody is able to carry on in life. If they have a primitive interpretation of this, they usually fake it big time, but... Again, remember here the same difference between indifference and detachment. Basically, Krishna talks about it as detachment, (coughs) while primitive interpreters will interpret it as indifference. It says, he who is of the same mind, who is of even intellect, that means who kind of has a." Uniformous attitude to the good-hearted friends enemies the indifferent the neutral the hateful the relatives the righteous and in the that's again even Jesus said love your enemies because if you love only who love love those that love you even the tax collectors can do that even Don Corleone of the mafia loves those who love him There is no virtue in loving those that please you. The real virtue is loving those that displease you. That is where you can see the true measure of things. And therefore this has been said in other environments. And it is a little bit taken to an extreme. It says to have the same mind towards the good-hearted as well as the wicked-hearted. Friends as well as strangers. Uh, friends as well as hateful, in the indifferent, the neutral, the righteous, the unrighteous. But for example, we see in the lives of great gurus like Milarepa or Saint Teresa of Avila, in the great of in the life of a Jesus or of a Rumi, that they had a different attitude towards people, although somewhere they may have had an even mind. Nevertheless, the attitude could very well be different. Like you can think, everybody is a child of God. Even the demons are children of God who are gone onto the path of darkness and wickedness. And perhaps one day after they consume their terrible karma, they will come back to the path of light, cleansed and relieved ...of all this burden of darkness and negative karma. Sure, metaphysically you are even-minded. But that does not mean that death had to be taken at the extreme of indifference. And then you simply say, everybody is just the same. You can be sure that if Jesus says, I am God... ...then for Jesus, everybody is his children... His apostles, his acquaintances, his family, his persecutors, his opponents. Everybody is a child of God. Everybody is a child of himself because he says, I am God. And yet, he definitely does not have the same attitude. Sometimes in the Bible he says, and he told to the disciple that he loved so much, which is John, John is often called the disciple whom he loved, but why? He loved all of them, didn't he? Then why is it mentioned specially about John? What's so special about John? That John, of all 12 apostles, is called by the syntagm, by the expression, uh, the disciple that Jesus loved. He wasn't Peter also a disciple that Jesus loved? Was an Andrew or Thomas also a disciple with Jesus' love? Why is it used specially for John? So, therefore, it is obvious you can see from this simple, from those simple examples, that of course, while Jesus is aware and he may be of an even mind in the inner more core of his being, nevertheless, he is aware of the fact that people must be. Treated in a different way according to the stage in their life. For example, he says, do not throw pearls to the swine because the swine will tread on them and turn against you. Jesus calls metaphorically some people swine. They are children of God and we are of even mind towards them. And right now they are swine. And we don't throw pearls to them. They are the children of God. But this should not make you lose the common sense. I remember when I read a calendar in India. And one of the mottoes there. I forgot from where it came. It says when you try to have an open mind. Make sure that your brains are not falling off your skull. Like an open mind does not mean you have to go stupid. And Ramakrishna said a yogi must be good, but a yogi must not be stupid. Because some people think that when you are good, you have to become so good that you are stupid, or when you are open, or oh, everything goes. Oh, we shouldn't judge. We should be tolerant. We should be. But Jesus is not tolerant and doesn't think that everything goes. And neither does Milarepa or Rumi. Or some even those that are considered coming from the heart chakra, the very loving ones, they can be pretty strict. Like once you cross a certain red line, they would not accept, they would not budge beyond that red line. And that is why... Again, this statement can be interpreted by the ignorant exactly as detachment is indifference. And it's like it doesn't matter. That's what Bhagavad Gita says. You have to be of even mind with the virtues and the sinner and the friend and the foe and this and that. But actually in real life, the fathers of the desert and Swami Shivananda and Mai and whoever you want. They did behave in different ways to different people according to their stage in life, according to the training and the tapas which they were doing, according to their dharma and karma, and according to so many other factors. That is why this is another confusing statement which comes together with the one with the pile of the lump of earth and the pile of gold. (coughs) <coughs> where Krishna saying, Distinguished is he who is of even intellect, among well-wishers, friends and foes, among the indifferent and the impartial, among hateful persons, and among kinsmen, among the saints, as well as the sinful. The even mind can be there, but it does not mean that a lesson should not be given. Jesus is of even mind, and then he says people, he sees the people that do business and commerce in the yard of the temple, and he goes on fire and he smashes down their vending desks and he shouts at them and so on. And he says, This is the house of my father, it is a house of prayer, and you have turned it into a den of thieves. He creates a whole ado and scandal. Why isn't he of even mind? Bhagavad Gita says, You have to be of even mind among the saints and the sinful. But actually when Jesus is among the sinful. He becomes very turbulent. And he has things to say and do. And that is why. Please understand. Here Krishna speaks about your inner center. That you are centered in yourself. And that's why Jesus for example. He doesn't want anybody dead. He even says. Because people say. Jesus you keep on inciting Negativity about these people whom you consider hypocrites and wrong and so on. Then why not kick their ass for good. And Jesus says because God does not want the death of the sinner. But the repentance. Like ultimately he says even those people are children of God. And what the cosmic consciousness would like the best would be that those people stop from their wickedness and correct themselves, repent, apologize, mend their ways, and then they start doing deeds of light and becoming virtuous. So, Jesus is of even mind. Because otherwise he would say, those people, those people are damaged goods. Those people are garbage. Shoot them, throw them on a pile of garbage and let's get to the society rid of them. But he cannot do that because he does have this level of consciousness. He does have this awareness. He is even-minded. All are children of God. All are souls that are in this evolution. And the best thing would be if they would mend their ways and become spiritual. But this does not mean that you cannot have a different attitude... While inside you, there is a sort of clear awareness on the background. One thing is the background of your consciousness. And another thing is what you need to do outside for the sake of the Dharma, for the sake of the evolution and for the sake of the spiritual activity. I will stop tonight here. Because starting with the next paragraph, Krishna, as I warned you in chapter 5, he starts teaching a sort of the second technique. Bhagavad Gita is a treatise which is very much about karma yoga and the teachings are about karma yoga and spirituality in general. But it's not a technical treatise of yoga. However, in the chapter 5, in one spot, and in the chapter 6, in the coming two shlokas, Krishna describes two practices. Those of you who remember, in the chapter number 5, Krishna was, if not listened to the lectures from chapter number 5, Krishna was describing a technique where you sit cross-legged and focus on the third eye and thus perform some Kriya Yoga, that being the essence from where the Kriya Yoga lineage has derived their main Kriya Yoga practice from that one. Well, Krishna has one more technical thing to say. Again, as I told you, the Bhagavad Gita is not a technical yoga text like Hatha Yoga Pradipika or Geranda Samhita. This is a text coming from a much older tradition, and not referring to Hatha Yoga, Asanas, Pranayama, and the likes of this. This yogic text is referring to another approach to yoga. Even in this, however, Krishna describes two vague, vague, as you are going to see again, technical modalities, and one of them starts in the next row. So we, st- uh, we stop today at the verse at number. 9, that was the last one, as we do usually, let us remain now in silence for a couple of minutes, allowing to this message from the wisdom of Krishna to sink in, just a gentle informal meditation, just relax, close your eyes, go deep in, whatever meditation, if you have learned Laya Yoga here, or the who am I or tantric vipassana or maybe you are practicing vipassana or other form. It doesn't matter, just interiorize yourself meditatively and allow your subconscious mind to calm down, to absorb the wisdom proceeding from Krishna. And that will do. With this we conclude our meeting of tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining. We have finished. We'll continue in our next satsang.